So if you've been walking with us, you know that we're in the middle of what is Paul's first missionary journey. Paul would take two other missionary journeys, each one getting farther and farther out into the Mediterranean region, and then he would take at least one other journey as a prisoner on the way to Rome to stand trial before the emperor. At this point, he's still years away from that. He's in the middle, he's still on the outbound part of what will be an out-and-back journey the first time he goes out specifically to spread the gospel around the Mediterranean Mediterranean region. So far, they sailed from Antioch in Syria over to the island of Cyprus. They preached the gospel all the way across the island, multiple cities, before then sailing north to what is today Turkey. After landing in Perga, they traveled up to Antioch and Pisidia, different Antioch than what they started out from. This particular Antioch, we read about last week. We read about what happened in both Perga and Antioch. As they shared the gospel with the Jewish and the Gentile, that means the non-Jewish people, some believed and were born again. Others hated the gospel message. And they stirred up a mob that drove the brave missionaries from their city. Last week, we saw how when Paul and Barnabas left Antioch and Pisidia, they paused at the outskirts of the city, and they shook the dust off of their shoes. It's as though they were saying to Antioch, we brought you the most valuable message in the world, and you treated us and it like dirt. Shall we, we shake the dirt of your town off of our shoes as we leave you? You rejected the gospel, and so we leave you in your filth. Interestingly, Antioch and Pisidia is nothing but ruins today, just dust at the place where Paul shook the dust off his shoes. Caleb, let's go to the next slide. We'll see a picture of what is left of Antioch and Pisidia. There's not much there. I have to wonder if the hole in the middle of that building is a toilet. I'm not, not sure why else you'd have a toilet, a hole right there. But after leaving Antioch, they walked 100 miles through hilly terrain to come to the city of Iconium, which is where we pick up today. Now, there's nothing left of Antioch, but Iconium is currently a city of 2.3 million people. Big difference. Here's a picture of it. Now, if you were to zoom in on that picture, and it's hard to see on the screen there, but you'd see a whole bunch of white towers sticking up. They're minarets from Muslim mosques. Just like most of Turkey today, the primary religion in what was the city of Iconium is Islam. At the time that Paul and Barnabas walk into Iconium, though, there's no such thing as Islam. That would, wouldn't come for another 600 years. At the time that they walk in, it's just the standard Greek and Roman polytheism, lots of gods and goddesses, paganism. Now, there was a Jewish community in Iconium, and so Paul and Barnabas do what they've done at all the other places they've gone to so far. They go to the Jewish synagogue first in order to tell the Jewish people that the promised Messiah that they've been waiting for for hundreds of years has come. His name is Jesus. He gave his life for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the plan. Go to the synagogue first. Tell the Jews. So, Acts 14. 
1 through 18. This is on page 923 in one of the Black Pew Bibles. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And I think these sentences here are pretty interesting. Like we've seen in the previous stops, some people are really excited about the gospel. They recognize it for the words of life that it is. Maybe they're particularly in tune with their own sin, their own desperation. They know that they are hopeless, that whatever system they've subscribed to, whether it's the Jewish system or the, the Gentile system, they know that it's not working for them. And if they died today, they would face judgment. And so when Paul shows up and says, hey, guess what? There is a Messiah who has come, and he's given his life to save you from your sins. They hear that, rightly, as the best news they could hear. They embrace it. They are excited. God came in the flesh in order to take our sins on himself, give up his life in order to purchase forgiveness of those sins so that we could have eternal life with the resurrected Jesus. We receive that by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's the amazing good news. And some people heard that and they responded excitedly. We're told that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe. Now, throughout the book of Acts, Luke will interchangeably use the words Gentiles and Greeks. When he says Greeks, he doesn't mean somebody who lives in Greece, even somebody who like, grew up in Greece and lives somewhere else. He doesn't even mean somebody with like a Greek heritage or ancestry. He uses the word Greek to mean all of the Gentile peoples of the Greco-Roman Empire, the, the Mediterranean region. So sometimes he says Gentiles, sometimes he says Greeks. And here he says that both Jews and Greeks heard the message, which was preached in the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. So if the, the Greeks heard it, it means that they were already searching for the truth of the one true God through the Jewish synagogue. Both kinds of people heard the gospel message. Both responded with faith. Both were saved from their sins by grace through faith alone. It didn't matter what their ancestry was because the gospel saves all types of people in the same way. As cool as verse 1 is, verse 2 takes an ominous tone. So you can hear the music in the background. Dun, dun, dun. Just like there were a bunch of Jews who believed in the gospel message and became disciples of Jesus, there were also a bunch who rejected it. They're referred to here by Luke as, quote, unbelieving Jews. Now, it's, it's really a strong statement. He's not simply saying that they were unconvinced. He's not saying that they sat back and said, well, that's interesting. Let me think about that for a week, and I'll talk to you next Saturday. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that they were determined. They were on purpose unbelieving. They heard the gospel message, and they said, we want nothing to do with that. They're actively unbelieving. They refuse to entertain the idea that God has come in the flesh and made a way for sinners to be reconciled to him, not by the efforts of the sinners, 
but by the work of God on their behalf. That is the thing that they reject. Turns out they hate this good news, and they hate the messengers of the good news. Luke tells us that these hate-filled, unbelieving people were not content simply to reject the gospel. They wanted to destroy the gospel message, the gospel witness in their town. They stirred up some of the Gentiles in town. That means they got them all um, agitated, all hot and bothered. They're raising up an angry mob. And Luke also tells us that they poisoned the minds of the Gentiles, of the people in town. So I want you to think about this. These are people who are Jewish, meaning they're part of God's chosen people. They've been given the Old Testament, all the promises pointing to the Messiah. They've been given the job of representing God to the rest of the world. And yet when a messenger of God shows up and says, let me tell you about the Messiah, their response is to poison the minds of the other people who are listening. That is evil, and it is twisted. So, what will Paul and Barnabas do in this case? Since these unbelieving people are stirring them up against them, opposing their minds towards the gospel, how did they respond? Verse 3, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, I love this. We were just told some people hated them, hated their message, poisoned the minds of other people, stirred up an angry mob against them, so their response is they stuck around and they continued to boldly preach the gospel. I love that. They didn't run away. They stood strong. We're told that they're even bold. They're not hiding. They're out in the open. They're boldly proclaiming the truth. Why? Because the people needed desperately to hear the gospel. Paul and Barnabas knew that these folks were dead in their sins. They had no hope of salvation unless they heard and embraced the gospel. And so they, at risk to themselves, they continued to boldly proclaim the gospel. Notice that God was also choosing to supplement their proclamation with miracles. We see this multiple times in the book of Acts. The apostles, the missionaries, they're sent into a new place, and sometimes, not always, sometimes God chooses to work miracles through them. Those miracles are not to draw attention to the apostles. It's not to enrich them or to make them into heroes it's to validate them as messengers and the message that they bring. You see it over and over again in Acts. It's a, it's a stamp of authenticity that God sometimes gave to these messengers in order to show those who were listening that, yes, they should be listening to these people. Some people today think that and if God would just you know, regularly do amazing miracles, then everybody would believe the gospel. This passage argues against that. Because these people saw, they witnessed miracles, what are called signs and wonders at the hands of the apostles. And yet they rejected the apostles, and they rejected the message of the apostles. 
How long were they there? We don't know. But they stuck it out in the face of resistance. They continued to proclaim the gospel boldly. Does this mean that anyone who faces resistance for the gospel should always stick it out forever? No, that's not what it means. In fact, very shortly, they're going to leave this place and go on somewhere else in order to proclaim the gospel there. Let's see why they left and how they left. Verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, that means murder them by pelting them with stones, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, citizens, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So they learned that the folks were planning to murder them, stone them to death, and they fled. Does that make them cowards? Not at all. We're just told that they stood their ground for who knows how long, boldly proclaiming the gospel in the face of resistance. But they recognized that their time here in Iconium was ended for now. Interestingly, just a few verses later, next week, we're going to read how they came back to that very place in order to check on the disciples that they had made. Yeah, we're going to go back to the place that tried to murder us. That's how courageous these guys are. But for now, it's time for them to move on. And so they walk 20 miles to the south to Lystra, and what do they do there? They boldly proclaim the gospel again, just like they were doing at all the other stops that they've done. And guess what? God's going to do a miracle there too. And how will the people of Lystra respond to the gospel message? The people of Iconium hated and rejected the gospel and the gospel messengers. They tried to murder Paul and Barnabas. What will happen in Lystra? Will it be the same? Verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Now, if you're familiar with the stories of Jesus, you know that this is obviously a setup. We know something miraculous is coming. You got a guy who's never walked. He's crippled from birth. Verse 9. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up, and began walking. So not only did God suddenly strengthen and heal whatever was wrong in the muscles or the bones or the ligaments or whatever of this guy's ankles and feet, it's as though Paul had like a, a, a USB drive with all the instructions for how to walk and like dance around, and he just downloaded it right into his brain because this guy who's never walked is up running around, dancing, probably doing jumping jacks and just look at me this is amazing i can't believe it and you know how hard it is to learn to walk you've watched a baby learn to walk maybe you've known someone who has been unable to walk because of an injury and had to relearn how to walk and you can imagine just how complicated all of that had to be going on inside of this guy to go from never walked in his whole life to up and running around it would be just like if owen suddenly could stand up and run around this room 
we would be absolutely amazed. This traveled all over town immediately. Nobody could talk about anything else. This was the big news in town. Verse 11. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, their own language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Okay. This is a very different response than what they got at Iconium. Iconium, they were hated, and they tried to murder them. Here, in Lystra... The people consider them gods and want to worship them. So, we've got the miracle of the crippled man. They see this. They immediately assume that these two guides must be God in the flesh, which I think is very ironic considering that they have come with the message that God came in the flesh to save them. So the idea of incarnation is not scandalous. It's not new to these pagan polytheistic Greco-Roman people. They've got all kinds of stories about their gods mating with humans and producing half-human, half-god offspring and, and uh, like participating in all the sinful things that humans do, drunkenness and orgies and, and lying and, and just all kinds. They've got all stories about that stuff. And so when two guys show up and they perform this miracle, it's natural for them to assume these must be some of the ancient gods come in the flesh. And maybe Barnabas was like a really buff dude and had a great beard and maybe he had like lightning bolt tattoos on his arms because they assume that he is Zeus, the father of the Greco-Roman gods. So Caleb wants to put a picture of our Zeus here. Maybe Barnabas looked like this guy. We do know from the witness of the New Testament that Paul was not an impressive looking dude. Maybe Barnabas obviously looked like the strong guy in the competition. So they assume that Barnabas is Zeus. They assume that Paul is Hermes, the messenger of the ancient Greek gods, because he was always talking. He wouldn't be quiet. He was the chief talker. And they say, of course, he must be Hermes. Now, I think this is, again, there's this poetic irony here. Hermes, by legend, travels all over the place, always delivering messages for the Greek gods. Paul will spend the rest of his life traveling all over the place, delivering the message of the one true God. These guys were close, but they got it wrong. Not only do the Lystrians think that Paul and Barnabas are gods, they are determined to worship them. Now, maybe because the people are speaking in their own language, which Luke is careful to tell us, maybe Paul and Barnabas don't understand what's going on at first. There's all this excitement and hubbub and all that. And then they realize, oh, they're bringing an ox and they're bringing some wood for a fire. And it looks like, oh no, they think that we are gods and they're going to worship us by sacrificing this ox to us. And so 
they they respond uh, really strongly. They like they they said we must put a stop to this. We cannot allow these people to idolize us, to worship us. They are servants of the one true God, and they will not allow the attention to be put on them instead of attention to be put on God. Verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments, which is a sign of mourning in the Jewish culture. You tear your garments when someone dies, something tragic happens. They tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. I love that they are so impassioned to try to prevent the people from their idolatry, even though it could have been such a great personal benefit to Paul and Barnabas. These guys are local rock stars. People think that they are Zeus and Hermes. They were set for life. They could have had anything they wanted. They could have ruled that region the rest of their lives. But these men are servants of the one true God. These men are messengers of the one true God, and they are dedicated to the glory of the one true God alone, not their own glory. They fear, they love, and they want to honor God more than they want the approval, the admiration, and the love of these people. Now, some of us in this room are wired to always be seeking the approval and the admiration and the love of other people. So let me say this last sentence for you again. These men, they fear and they love and they want the honor to go to God more than they want the approval or the admiration or the love of the people, which they were guaranteed to have. All they had to do was receive it. So they stop the crowds, and they try to convince them that they are simply men like themselves, that they are not gods, they are messengers of the one true God. They speak of him as the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that's within them. In a sense, they're, they're making an argument that's, that's kind of similar to Romans chapter 1. See how they kind of build on that in just a couple verses here. But notice, we've got the biblical response to the gospel outlined in here, both of its parts. Both necessary parts of the biblical response to the gospel are voiced in these verses. They say to them, you should turn from these vain things to living God. So we've got repentance and we've got faith. We've got turn away from this, turn towards this. Turn away from the worthless, vain worship of idols. He's saying to them, your entire religious system is worthless. It is vain. It accomplishes nothing. So turn from it instead to the true and living God. Paul then goes on, verse 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without 
witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. If you've got time this week, I encourage you to read chapter 1 of Romans, which makes a similar kind of argument. That yes, God chose specific people, the Jewish people, right? He actively chose Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, which is in southern Iraq today. He said, I'm pulling you out of your pagan culture, and I'm going to introduce myself to you, and I'm going to make you the father of a special nation. You're going to be my people. Later on, he chose Moses as the, the messenger of the law. He chose a whole bunch of prophets throughout the Old Testament as more messengers of the law. He chooses, he chooses, he chooses to communicate to this narrow group of people. But he doesn't leave everybody else in the world without a witness. Romans 1 and this chapter right here say that the witness for God is in the creation. That as you look around at the marvelously complex creation, you should come to the conclusion that there is an amazing creator behind it. When the rains come and the harvest is plentiful, as Paul speaks about here, that should point you to the idea that that there is a good, generous, loving God behind this that is caring for you, that is providing you what you need. He He talks about when your hearts are satisfied and you've got good food, like when the party's good and you're rejoicing. That should point to you, maybe expose in you a longing for something even better, something that will ultimately satisfy you. Because, you know, when the the party's over and the the next day you're just back to normal life, you realize, you know, it was a great time, but I'm still stuck in life. That, That joyful celebration, when your heart is full, is meant to point you to something greater, that you were designed to be satisfied in God alone. Those are the, the things that he's trying to communicate here, and he also gets to in Romans chapter 1. It's as though Paul and Barnabas are saying, look, the natural world has pointed you to the one true God, but until now, you guys missed it. You, you bought the lie of that Greek, Roman, pagan religion culture that surrounded you. It makes sense. It's all you've ever known. He says, but it's a lie. They're not a bunch of gods. There's only one true God. He's the creator, and he's the ruler over everything, and he sent us as messengers to tell you about him, specifically to tell you that he has sacrificially loved you. You who owed him a great debt, he has loved you self-sacrificially, in order to welcome you into his family, to adopt you into his family and spend eternity with him. If you'll turn from your vain ways and turn to him. That's what they're saying to him. And even with these clear words, even with the miracles that obviously set them apart, and then the clear presentation of the gospel and their insistence that they are just men with a great message... Look how the passage ends, verse 18. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. They have just voiced the gospel message that your sacrifices will not accomplish anything, that your works do not make you right with the one true God. 
people want to continue in their works. They want to continue in their religious system. They would rather worship Paul and Barnabas than the one true God. They've been given a choice between a God who loves them, who came to rescue them and paid the ultimate price to forgive them of their sins, who offers them eternal life as a free gift that they can receive by grace through faith. That's one side of the offer. Or they can continue in this broken vein system where they're always trying to offer enough sacrifices and be good enough and do the right things and maybe someday they'll end up in whatever they think of heaven is. Why would they be so determined to choose the second option? Why would they do that? That's all right. Owen needs a little help breathing right now, so we'll give him a second. On, uh, on Friday when we adopted him, he, he got up and he basically slept all, the, all morning while at home. He slept all the way down to the, uh, to the courtroom. And then while he was at the courtroom, he was awake and doing pretty well. And then he just slept the rest of the day after that. So he's got some great timing. All right. So the question is, if they've been given the option, one true God who loves you, who self-sacrificially made a way for you to be forgiven despite your own works, with no input from your own works, just grace, faith alone. If that's one option. And the other option is stay in your, um, what they think is a divinely ordained, but is really a man-made system of religion where they're offering their sacrifices and they're saying their prayers and they're hoping to gain points and hopefully someday they might be good enough. They're given those two options the crowd chooses the second option. Why would they do that? Well, John Calvin, who was a great reformer from about 500 years ago, he said this, the human heart is an idol factory. I think he nailed it. We create, we are always manufacturing idols. We readily worship our goals or success or our plans. We worship people, so celebrities, athletes, co-workers that are maybe above us, uh, stu- other students at school. Without knowing it, we can live for the approval and the praise of others. And we will then tend to idolize those and worship people that we think could maybe help us advance in the world. Do just about anything to help ourselves get ahead. And that feeds, that's the fuel for that idol factory. It's the coal coming in to run that idol factory, always wanting things to get better for us. If we're honest, we really want other people to worship us, like the people of Lystra were so eager to do to Paul and Barnabas. This is a deadly And it's a depressing trap. It's an endless cycle of despair. And some of you have lived that despair. You know what it's like to be trapped in that endless cycle. But God 
not only has, but is the way out. Because he's the only one that is worthy of our worship. We have structured our lives for his glory and his pleasure, then we can experience freedom that most of the world can't even imagine. So look again at our passage today, how it ends. There were two distinct reactions to the gospel message. Both of them were idolatrous, even though they seemed to be opposite of each other. The Jewish leaders in Iconium were jealous of the gospel message and the gospel messengers, and so they rejected the message of grace, preferring their man-centered religious traditions. Now, I know God gave the religious system to the Jewish people, but it has become something at this point for these Jewish people that is a stumbling block so that they're actually rejecting the message of God. And so it's become man-centered. It's become about them, about their own performance. They rejected the free gift of salvation by grace through faith in order to hold on to the exhausting system, the, the endless cycle of rituals, and there's no hope of saving it. They wanted to be in control. They wanted to be able to control their destiny by doing the system. And a lifetime of vain labor was the result. There are thousands of people around us that have fallen for that same trap. They've made the same trade. Then we get to Lystra. The people rejected the gospel in favor of worshiping Paul and Barnabas as gods. So they heard the message of the one true God who loves them and came to rescue them and offers them forgiveness and eternal life freely, by grace, through faith alone. And they thought that it would be better to disbelieve the messengers of God and instead idolatrize them, idolize them, worship them as gods. Their commitment to their previous religious system was so great that they refused to believe the apostles and they wanted to worship them instead. Now, if you or I if we claim to believe in and worship a god, so these guys in Lystra, they claim to believe, at least in Zeus and Hermes, and that Paul and Barnabas were those guys. If, if you claim to believe in and worship a god, and then like in the case of Paul and Barnabas, the gods say to you, you're wrong, stop what you're doing, go the opposite direction. And yet you continue in the same direction that you were going before, disregarding these beings that you claim to be God. Doesn't that reveal that truly you think you are the God of your own life? If these guys really believed that, they, that these dudes were gods in the flesh, and they told them, stop what you're doing, what you're doing is wrong, wouldn't they immediately say, okay, wait, wait, all right, tell us how we're wrong? That is not the case. Because in their hearts, they have manufactured idols that control them that say, even though with your mouth you are claiming that you serve these deities, you are still calling the shots. You are refusing to listen to them. And can you see how that is similar to us today? 
that we, even those of us who God has saved, that we have heard the gospel message and we've turned from the vain things and turned to Christ as our Savior, we may publicly proclaim that we worship the one true God, and yet, if we're honest, there's a large part of our hearts and our minds that we just want to keep off limits from the reach of God. That we want to still call the shots. We want to be in control and determine what's right, what's wrong, what our destiny is, how much we listen to this being that we claim created and rules over everything. We are just like these people. The situation is just a little different. Are you fighting against the gospel in your life today? Maybe you fight against the message of God or the messenger of God, which is primarily the written word of God for us today. Maybe you even avoid reading the Bible because you don't want to know what it says. Because you'd rather keep control of your own life and pay lip service to this God you claim to worship than to know what he says and have to choose whether or not to submit to him. Just like these guys in Lystra claim to worship these false deities and then want nothing to do with what the false deities say, do you claim to worship the one true God and yet want to keep him at a safe distance so that you can be in control of your own life? That's a deadly and depressing, endless cycle. But God welcomes you to step out of it today, to surrender completely to him, to say, I am not God. You alone, Jesus, are Lord of my life, and I will submit to you. So no matter where you lead me, no matter what you ask me to do, no matter how difficult, scary, even life-threatening the mission is, I belong to you. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. God used them to bring the gospel message to thousands upon thousands of people who were completely without hope until those two dudes fully surrendered to Jesus showed up. And yet, it wasn't about them. And so if you fully surrender to Jesus, it's not going to be about you either. You may live a life of obscurity where nobody knows your name. You never become famous. When you die, there's a little funeral and nobody knows what to say. And yet you will have been faithful to Christ. You will have had an impact on people's lives. You won't be worshipped. But God may be worshipped because of the life that you lived. In a moment, we're going to sing the song, Yet Not I, But Christ in me. Uh, the lyrics are beautiful, each verse proclaiming a different aspect of the gospel message and always pointing back to the fact that this is about Jesus. It's not about us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these 18 verses in Acts 14. I thank you for the, the great encouragement that they are to us and the great challenge they are to us. And 
Lord, I pray for those who may be listening today who are trying to decide whether or not to embrace this gospel message. They're not yet yours. They have not yet been born again. Lord, would you call them to yourself? Would you help them to overcome whatever it is that's holding them back, Lord? Would they become your child even today? Would you give them the gift of faith so that they could turn from their vain ways and turn towards trusting in you alone? And Lord, from those of us who already belong to you and yet we are we're idol factories still, we, we are constantly coming up with new ways to ignore you and to puff ourselves up and ensure our own success and that other people love us and adore us. And There's so many ways, Lord, that we are living for ourselves unless we're intentionally surrendering over and over again to you. Lord, for us, please give us a, a picture, a vision of the fact that you are the only one worthy of our praise and of our lives. And so we would take our lives and we would offer them to you and that you would have the freedom to do whatever you want with them because we're fully surrendered to you. We can even say those words and yet we don't know how to do that. And so we ask that you would do that in us, Lord. In Jesus' name.